Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest updates from across Ukraine, discuss broader strategic questions for the year to come, and analyse the news that Russia's oil and gas revenues have plummeted by 37% in just one year. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 19th of January, one year and 329 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, Assistant Comment Editor Francis Durnley, Energy Editor Jonathan Leake, and our guest is Senior Lecturer in Post-Soviet Security at King's College London, Ruth Deamond. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. So let's start just inside Russia. A Ukrainian drone strike has satellite a very large oil depot in Russia's Bryansk region. This is coming from, well, initially coming from the local governor, although it's now all over the media. And I think you can probably see it from space as well. So Bryansk Oblast is that that bit of Russia that borders Ukraine and Belarus, about uh, 250 k southwest of Moscow. It's down in that sort of corner that uh, that wedges into the bit between uh, Belarus and Ukraine. So Alexander Bogomaz, the uh, the regional governor, said more than a dozen fire engines had rushed to extinguish the blaze, and he said, well, early reports there were no casualties. However, unverified footage all over social media, and you'll see it on our website as well shows very thick black smoke pouring into the sky as this huge fire rages alongside what appear to be, or used to be, storage tanks. Now, the last thing I saw about half an hour ago when I was checking up on this, Russian state media saying four oil tanks burning um, and emergency services there have failed to bring the blaze under control. They say it's now more than three times its original size. Russian media is saying that it now covers some 1,800 square metres. It's a very, very large fire. Mr Bogomaz wrote on Telegram, an aircraft-type unmanned aerial vehicle was suppressed by electronic warfare equipment of the Russian Ministry of Defence. When the air target was destroyed, ammunition was dropped onto the territory of the Klinsky oil depot. So Klinsky in the Bryansk uh, area. Klinsky is very close to the Ukrainian border. It's only about 50 k's away. So, right, fine. If it's been, if this drone's been suppressed, but it's but it's still dropped its dropped its ammunition, then that's I deemed. I'd say that was a successful attack. Anyway, news agency FP said that the um, Ukrainian security sources had claimed early, later on in the morning, a couple of hours ago, claimed credit for the attack. Ukrainian media made similar claims again in the last couple of hours. And then in a statement given to RBC Ukraine, Ukraine's military intelligence director at the GUR said, so not quite taking responsibility, but they said such events regularly occur at military facilities on the territory of the aggressor state. It is clear that when it comes to an oil depot that is involved in the supply of fuel and lubricants, this complicates logistics for the occupiers. This disrupts supply schedules and security schedules. Accordingly, it provides additional opportunities, spare time, and increases the room for manoeuvre for our defenders. So if the GUR are not saying they did it, they are clearly very happy with whoever did. Now, this obviously comes in the wake of the uh, that drone shot down over St. Petersburg oil terminal early yesterday, early Thursday morning. That one reportedly passed over Putin's country retreat in the process. He's thought to have a house to the west of, I think to the southwest of St. Petersburg, and continues this pattern of uh, seemingly Kiev is, is going after Russia's supply chains, oil and, and what have you. 
Now, Mr. Bogomaz, who I said was the Bryansk regional governor, he said other drones had been brought down in nearby Bogarsky and Unetsky districts and said that they hadn't caused any casualties or damage. They are all in the same area, right down in that bit, that wedge, as I said, that goes into borders Belarus and Ukraine. Next, into Ukraine, and Kyiv's grip on the Dnipro River bridgehead, the left bank, the um, the east bank, is said to be slipping as troops are ground down by relentless Russian assaults. This is coming out of the Financial Times. They were speaking to a, a Ukrainian reconnaissance soldier who said they are taking heavy casualties whilst holding a position on the on the east bank, which they first set up last November, you may remember. And they say Russia is reported to outnumber Ukrainian forces there five to one. Now, that's that's a legitimate story. Journalists report legitimate stories. I would just echo the comments by Phillips O'Brien, the professor of strategic studies at the University of St. Andrews. I mentioned this a few days ago. Now, he said that it's very easy to take these reports because, of course, we're, we're only hearing from the Ukrainian side. It's, it's impossible to go and interview Russian soldiers. So we hear these stories from Ukrainian soldiers who have just been in combat. So they are largely, you could expect them to be quite traumatised. Their um, their experiences are going to be very, very graphic and visceral. So Phillips O'Brien's making the point that we shouldn't just say, oh, well, take it as, as you know, one anecdote leads to data. That's not correct. So it is a story worth reading, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it is not, you wouldn't also get the same from the other side. Now, Ukraine says its military has hit six targets in the last day using aircraft and missiles, striking, as they describe, areas of concentration of personnel, weapons and enemy control points, one of them presumably being the oil depot in Bryansk. Another is likely to be this strike in Krinky, which is on the left bank of the Dnipro River, in the area of that Ukrainian lodgement, whatever we're calling that thing down there. A Russian drone operator, apparently known as Moses, who was said to have uh, claimed the lives of hundreds of Ukrainian troops, was killed in a strike. This footage suggests that this person was themselves killed by a first-person view drone, an FPV drone that flew into the building where he apparently was was hiding out. Pro-Russian military bloggers uploaded drone footage of that explosion. I will also say, however, Radio Free Europe, They're saying that Russian troops are generally advancing across the front line in small gains, concentrating their attacks on the Luhansk region. They are citing, so this is Radio Free Europe, citing a report from Ukraine's general staff, adding that, or what they think, Russian commanders are intent on capturing Sinkovka. That's about 75 k's east-southeast of Kharkiv. They are said to be storming the village without regard for losses. So there are incremental gains, nothing operational, so as in big moving parts. It's very, very tactical and a few hundred metres, if that, at a time. Now, staying in Ukraine, and Ukrainian partisans from Atesh, the Ukrainian resistance movement, and satellite imagery have confirmed that Ukrainian strikes against Occupy Crimea in late December 2023 sank a Tarantal-class corvette near Sevastopol. Now, this is a previously unaccounted for successful Ukrainian strike against Russian maritime forces in Crimea. The wreckage of a border guard ship of Project 205P Tarantul, which was in Ukrainian naval service but taken by Russia after the war started in 2014, is said to be located at the pier of Grafska Bay in Sevastopol. Institute for the Study of War has confirmed the claim using satellite imagery of the coordinates provided by Atesh and adding they think the ship sank between December the 28th and 31st. Russian and Crimean officials had previously said that airstrikes around that around that time had been repelled. But then I wouldn't believe anything they say. And then finally for me, for now, the Russian parliament intends to formally question France's... No, not, not that one. As in the country, France's National Assembly on claims that French mercenaries have been fighting for Ukraine. Vyacheslav Lodin, who's chairman of the State Duma in Moscow, announced the move after the Kremlin said on Wednesday that its forces had killed dozens of foreign guns for hire, mostly French citizens, in a missile strike. It didn't provide any evidence for that claim whatsoever. And France has denied the allegations, insisting it has, well, (laughs) cryptically, insisting it has no mercenaries in Ukraine unlike certain others. I I don't know what they mean there, but I'll leave you on that note, David. Thank you very much for all of that, Dom. Francis Sternley, you've been taking a look at some of the diplomatic and uh, political updates. Would you like to talk us through it? 
Well, thanks, David. The headline that's caught many people's attention this morning is that NATO must prepare for all-out war with Russia in the next 20 years. That's coming from top NATO military official Admiral Rob Bauer. Evidently, the aforementioned pivot from denial and some would argue complacency to pretty frank alarmism is now in full swing as Europe awakens to the fact that a Trump victory in November is not an eccentric hypothesis, but may actually be the most likely outcome as things stand. Admiral Bauer said that while armed forces are primed for the outbreak of war, private citizens need to be ready for a conflict that would require wholesale change in their lives. Large numbers of civilians will need to be mobilised in case of the outbreak of war and governments should put in place systems to manage the process, he told reporters after this meeting of NATO defence chiefs in Brussels before some 90,000 NATO troops begin the bloc's largest military exercise next week since the Cold War. We have to realise it's not a given that we are at peace and that's why we are preparing for a conflict with Russia. But the discussion is much wider. It is also the industrial base and also the people that have to understand they play a role, he said. He then went on to praise Sweden for asking all of its citizens to brace for war ahead of the country formally joining the NATO alliance. That has actually led to a surge in volunteers for the country's civil defence organisation and a spike in sales of torches and battery-powered radios. It starts there. Bauer said, the realisation that not everything is planable and not everything is going to be hunky-dory in the next 20 years. We need to be readier across the whole spectrum. You have to have a system in place to find more people if it comes to war, whether it does or not. Then you talk mobilisation, reservists or conscription. You need to be able to fall back on an industrial base that is able to produce weapons and ammunition fast enough to be able to continue a conflict if you are in it. David Cameron, too, Britain's foreign secretary, yesterday warned against 1930-style appeasement of Vladimir Putin and promised Britain would keep supporting Ukraine in the struggle of our generation, his phrase. He urged Britain's allies not to push for peace talks between Kiev and Moscow, arguing that unifying behind Ukraine was the best way to end the war. He was speaking at the World Economic Forum in Davos and he compared the calls for negotiations to the appeasement of Hitler by Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain in the lead up to the Second World War. To quote him, if foreign ministers keep saying, yes, we will support Ukraine, but yes, we must also start a peace process, they neither get a strong Ukraine nor a peace process. This is like being a foreign minister or prime minister in the 1930s and fighting that aggression. And what we know from that is if you appease aggression, you get more of it. He then nodded as the Polish foreign minister stood up and said, there is never a shortage of pocket chamberlains willing to sacrifice other people's land or freedom for their own peace of mind. We shouldn't do it. Now, it's very easy to evoke Chamberlain's name, but I do think it's important to remember that Chamberlain was no fool. He knew that Britain was not prepared for war in the 1930s and whilst hopeful that Hitler might be able to be stopped, was buying Europe valuable time to arm, valuable time that Hitler himself then blamed for being the reason why he lost the war, as he believed that he would have invaded the Soviet Union earlier and therefore seized Moscow before winter. He specifically blamed Chamberlain for that. So when Chamberlain is evoked, it's important to remember that there is more to the man than the myth. But nevertheless, he is still a symbol of, one would argue, a, an ideology, perhaps. And in that sense, of course, it still has value. But just a bit of a historical correction there, I think, is necessary. Now, whilst it's welcome, in my view, to see Europe waking up to the importance of mobilisation for deterrence, I do also think that it has an unfortunate counter effect, which could have implications for the war in Ukraine and beyond. Namely, that when one hears senior figures say NATO could be at war with Russia in X number of years, it actually makes it sound as if a war, if it began, would be a serious battle where Russia could feasibly hold its own. I think that notion should at least be questioned, even with its extensive mobilisation. Imagine for a moment what a conventional war between NATO, even just a European NATO and Russia would look like. Russia 
has barely been able to hold its own against one army, let alone dozens. It would simply be an idiotic war for them to even contemplate, not just because of the weaponry, but because Russia would also be outmatched in the logistical war. A war, by the way, which had also lost in World War II and was only able to win on the Eastern Front due to the Lend-Lease Act from America, Britain and others, which kept it in the fight by donating countless tonnes of weapons, trucks and ammunition. My slight fear then is that this kind of rhetoric, whilst helpful in some ways, is unhelpful in others, as it makes the Russian bear a terrifying threat when really we should think back to those early weeks of the war in Ukraine when its operational ability was utterly exposed. Russia is less of a bear than a cub with ideas above its station, I would argue. But I digress. Staying with NATO, just a quick update on Sweden's secession, which has still not yet been formalised, but we learned this week that it is on the Turkish Parliament's post-New Year agenda, albeit as the very last item. Listeners will recall that Sweden applied for membership in NATO in parallel with Finland in May 2022. On July 5th of the same year, Sweden and Finland were formally given the status of prospective members. For Finland, that process ended in April last year when membership became completely clear after Hungary and Turkey became the last NATO countries to ratify the country's application. Then on October 23rd, the Turkish presidential office announced that Erdogan had signed and forwarded Sweden's NATO application to the parliament. And on November 16th, the issue was raised in the parliament's foreign affairs committee, but the vote was postponed. Then, on December 26th, the Foreign Affairs Committee approved Sweden's application and forwarded the matter to the Parliament's main chamber. But we still don't know exactly when it's going to all be finalised. One wonders whether its appearance as the very final item on the agenda is deliberate. But nonetheless, there has been great progress. Progress two on Ukraine's Black Sea Grain Corridor with, we learned this week, the rate of export of agricultural products in the Black Sea almost returning to pre-war levels with the cost of cargo insurance decreasing significantly. This is all coming from the president of the Ukraine Agrarian Confederation who said capacity has almost been restored. Although the Nikolaev and Herzon terminals are not working now, their restoration is still ahead. He also clarified that Ukraine, in order to protect the maritime export corridor, installed new weapons on the Black Sea shores that hit hostile targets that harm the transportation of grain. And this is leading to some analysts this morning arguing that the only strategy that works with Russia is a threat of symmetric retaliation against their critical infrastructure. He also praised the support of Great Britain, which declared its readiness to use military aircraft to escort ships owned by British companies. It is very important, he said, that it was the British insurance company that was the first to insure transportation. Now there are already four countries that insure transportation and the cost of insurance has decreased significantly. Today it is 1.25% of the cost of cargo and we started with 7%. Because we have shown that we can protect these ships, the cost of insurance has dropped significantly. Now, I know it's been a while since we've talked about the grain deal and grain grain corridors in detail, but as we saw when it all kicked off, until there were tangible alternatives in place, it seemed likely that Russia would hold all the cards in terms of pushing the UN to grant sanction alleviations in order to restore the grain corridors of Ukrainian produce. Now that alternative routes have been found, that diplomatic asset is being stripped from Russia. More promising news for Ukraine, of course, in the form of the Polish truckers who have been blocking border points with Ukraine since November in that they have now reached an agreement with the government and have suspended their protests. That was quite often used by Russia as an example of how divided Europe was about Ukraine. So with that being alleviated, they lose another tool to sow discord with. And just finally, a story from closer to home reported in our paper is that Jeremy Hunt, the British Chancellor, has vowed to launch a further crackdown on Russia amid fears that Putin is using countries such as the United Arab Emirates to dodge Western sanctions. He said the issue of the Kremlin sanctions evasion remained a concern at the highest level. As he said, world leaders were exploring ways to toughen it up 
in the meetings in Davos. Several companies used the UAE and were sat, had, had been sanctioned by the US for selling aircraft parts and equipment to Russian firms. The US Treasury took action against one UAE-based shipping company on Thursday. And last November, the UK also sanctioned a network responsible for channeling more than $300 million in gold revenues to Russia. Asked if Britain and other Western countries are doing enough, Mr Hunt said, dealing with people who are getting around the sanctions we have against Russia is on the agenda at every finance minister's meeting that I've gone to with my G7 colleagues. And it really does matter because the longer that Russia is able to afford the war in Ukraine, the longer that war will go on. Strong words, David, but are the actions from other global partners enough? Well, thank you very much, Dom. And thank you so much, Francis, for all of that reporting. Let's go now to uh, another debutant this week on the Ukraine The Latest podcast, Jonathan Leake, the uh, Telegraph's energy editor. Jonathan, you've written a really fascinating uh, read on the website. The headline uh, is Putin's petrodollars dry up as Arab-Russian cartel loses its grip. I would recommend all of our listeners go and read it. We'll put the link in the podcast description. But let's well, let's start at the beginning. Jonathan, you write, quote, Vladimir Putin is facing a drain on the Kremlin coffers that threaten to sink his war machine. Can you talk us through what's happening? Yeah, so I think it's worth just going back to the days before the war and looking at what happened in terms of Russia's uh, exports and our use of those exports. Prior to the conflict, the UK was getting something like 25% of its diesel fuel from Russia and a bit more from that was coming from Russia via refineries in Sweden. And we were also getting, just by the way, something like 4% of our gas in the form of LNG as shipments, but possibly up to another 5 or 10% in the form of piped gas that was coming in through Europe and getting mixed in the European hubs. So the UK was quite reliant on Russia as a source of imports. And the same applied to an even greater extent in terms of gas, especially to much of Europe. And uh, with the Ukraine, and just by the way, there are something like four or five pipelines from Russia running into Europe, carrying gas, some of which go through Ukraine. So the linkages were huge. There's also linkages with Germany and so on. And uh, when the conflict started, all that got cut off, leaving Russia with a big problem. The big problem was, first of all, it had nowhere to send its oil and gas or at least none of its normal export sources. And secondly, that it wasn't getting the money that it had been getting from Europe, which was huge. The Russian federal budget is something like 45% reliance on revenues from oil and gas. So given they also had the expense of a war, that was a big problem for them. So what's happened since then is that the, the Russian oil and gas has been diverted, and I'll deal with oil here. So oil has been, is no longer being purchased by much of Europe directly. So the new customers are emerging as China and India. And China and India have loved this because essentially they can buy oil that normally retails at, say, $75, $80 a barrel for maybe $35 discount. So $50, $55 sort of price. So the imports from, from Russia to India have absolutely surged, and so have those to China. Now, I think the, most of the imports to China get used by China. But in India, there's a lot of refineries which specialize in exports. And those exports, essentially, the refineries in India have been taking oil from Russia at maybe $50 a barrel, selling it to and uh, refining it, selling it to customers in India, but also to customers uh, outside of India, which includes Europe. Now, talking to traders, it's very difficult to get hard and fast figures from the UK government, as you can imagine. But you can see what's happening by looking at the um, uh, import and export data from India produced by the UK government, but also the trade flows which are reported to analysts. So speaking to uh, people like um, Panmure Gordon, where uh, Ashley Kelty is the director of research, he figures that something like 25% of the diesel reaching the UK now is coming from India and that a large chunk of that, maybe 30 or 40%, is going to be of Russian origin. If you talk to Onyx Capital, which is an oil derivatives trader, they say exactly the same thing. And they've been tracing these flows from India through to the UK, which would normally come, of course, by the Suez Canal, but are now diversing around Africa. Just to give you some figures... So India has been exporting 248,000 barrels per day 
of diesel to Europe through December, which is an increase from 175,000 in December of the previous year. And then you can look at the uh, imports to India. So India imported something like 69 million metric tonnes of Russian oil, which is about 1.85 million barrels a day between January and September of last year. And that's uh, also a big increase on previous years. So uh, what a a picture that builds up through all this data and through the analysts who are tracking the flows of oil is that Russian oil is still coming into the UK it could be a very significant proportion of the diesel we consume and that a very large proportion of that is going to be of Russian origin and hence, even though we don't want to, it'll be supporting the Russian economy and the Russian war effort. Jonathan, thank you so much for explaining all of that. Could we bring OPEC into this conversation? It's a big part of your article and it's it's some context, I think, which is important for our listeners to understand. So could you just talk about how OPEC fit into all of this and why you think its control of of this trade is slipping. Yeah, so OPEC was founded around 1960 by five of the world's then biggest oil-producing nations. And essentially, it was a reaction to what had been the control of uh, Middle Eastern oil by American and UK interests. And you can see why back then there were good reasons for them wanting to take back control and uh, take back the money that went with the flows of oil from the Middle East, essentially, although Venezuela was part of OPEC back then, and essentially control that, those resources and the future money they bring in. OPEC subsequently expanded to 12 members, and through the 60s and 70s and 80s, they had a pretty much iron grip on the flow of oil from the Middle East to the rest of the world. And as they controlled a very large chunk of the world's oil resources, they could effectively control the oil price. Now, In the 2000s, the number of sources of oil began to increase, and many of those sources were outside of OPEC. So OPEC began to lose control a little of of its ability to manipulate prices. So in 2016, um, OPEC expanded to what's now called OPEC+, and I think there's about an extra 10 members joined, uh, one of which was Russia. Essentially, that was an effort to maintain control of the whole international oil markets. But unfortunately, if you enlarge from 12 to more than 20 or 20 countries, you're going to find that not all of them have the same interests and the same commitment to the cause. So what the OPEC plus era has seen is a kind of fracturing of the former alliances that held OPEC together. Recently, we saw Angola quitting OPEC plus because... It said that OPEC Plus no longer aligned with what it needed. And so in so first we've seen OPEC fracturing a little. And secondly, we've seen an enormous increase in the output of oil from other countries which don't belong to OPEC, OPEC Plus, and which are more aligned with the US. Now, the biggest of those is, is the US, whose exports of oil have increased enormously. I think what's happened there is that they have a, an area called the Permian Basin, which essentially is very rich in oil, but where the technologies of the past didn't enable all the oil to be extracted. Well, the new technologies have changed all that, and they've pushed the USA into being one of the biggest players on the global oil markets. It's got enough to supply itself and export. So American oil has really increased by something, I think it's in the region of something like five or 600 million barrels a day. And that's just the increase. And then... You've got other countries like Guyana, Brazil, and uh, Canada coming up, coming up as well. So, what's happening essentially is that the, even though the world's demand for oil is growing and the world's supply of oil, uh, the world's supply of oil is growing too, and possibly a bit faster. So, one result of that is that prices haven't gone up in the way that some expected, because supply is managing to keep up with and slightly outstrip demand. And the other result is that OPEC has lost market share. In other words, it used to control something like 60% of the world's supply. It's now down in the 40s. And the consequence of that is that they don't have as much of a grip. They're not such of a market maker as they used to be. If you join those two things together, reducing market share and not much agreement between OPEC's members, then you begin to see OPEC's grip weakening significantly and not a free market, but a freer market beginning to emerge. Final question from me then, Jonathan, before we go to Ruth. 
let's bring all these threads together. What do you think this means for Russia and the war? The Russian economy, as we've already said, is very dependent on oil and gas, and especially the government. The government gets uh, 45% of its revenues from oil and gas. So the American Treasury estimates that revenues have gone down by something like 40% for um, the Russian government. Now, that might be a bit of wishful thinking, but if it's gone down at all in the face of what's a very expensive war, then that's a very destabilizing factor. And it means that Putin's government must be very worried about the level of income it's getting and its ability to not just manage the war, but to keep people happy, as it were, at home. And by happy, I mean just supplying the basics, education, health, all the things that a government should do. And at some point, that stress could lead to a number of things. Potentially, it could lead to unrest. It could also lead to inflation. There's all kinds of risks ahead for for Putin on that one. And just as a thought for the future, the Americans have made it very clear that this is not just some temporary squeeze and that if they are able to continue their policies, which obviously depends on the results of the forthcoming election, then they will continue this approach until 2030 because they want to drive Russia down as um, a dominant force in the world's energy markets. So in the short term, by which I mean a year or two, big problems in financing the war and all the other commitments that Putin has. And in the longer term, unless there's 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 a peace and a reconciliation, then continuing pressure for the next several years potentially. Jonathan Leake, thank you so much for your time. That was really fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Let's go to our final guest then today, Senior Lecturer in Post-Soviet Security at King's College London, Ruth Damon. Ruth, thank you so much for joining us. Can we start with a fairly broad question? Could you just give us your thoughts on where you think we are in the war and what the implications of those thoughts are for the coming year? Yeah, sure. So so I think we're not much has changed really in the last few months. We're in a I suppose a kind of period where both the start and the end of the war uh, look a long way off. And it seems to me unlikely that that's going to change significantly by the end of the year. I, I think maybe this time last year, that well, we know this time last year, there was an expectation that a potentially successful Ukrainian counteroffensive could radically shift the dial on, on the war. That obviously hasn't happened. Um, so we're in a, a, a stalemate, I think, although... One thing that we are likely to see over the course of this year is, I think, push diplomatically, politically by Russia to shift their fortunes on the international stage, the international perceptions of the war. And I think that's going to be tied closely to the American presidential elections in November. So so if there is a kind of significant shift by the end of the year, it's likely to be a result of that, I think. Just picking you up there, what I mean, what do you think have been the most important developments over the last few months? You, you said that you don't think much has changed. We're in a bit of a stalemate. Where do you see, if you do see changes, where do you see them? Well, I mean, over the last few months, obviously, and we've already heard about this earlier on, the Ukraine's success in the Black Sea, I think, is a, a very significant factor, and, and not just economically. It's very important for all sorts of reasons. I mean, the fact that the Ukrainians managed to push Russia out of, I mean, not entirely, but to some extent dislodge Russia from their naval bases in Sevastopol in in Crimea and and move to the east of the peninsula and actually relocate some ships to Russia itself. That's very significant. It's politically significant because of the importance of a Russian military base uh, in Crimea, which has been a Russian preoccupation since the collapse of the Soviet Union. So I think that's been significant in all sorts of ways, possibly the most important development. But the second very important development, I guess, is is a kind of lack of development, a recognition that the counteroffensive, apart from the Black Sea, that the counteroffensive has not been successful in the way that was expected. And that's forcing everyone, I think, to, to rethink how they approach the war, both in Ukraine and in the West as well. Are there any subjects or issues you think the media like us and and the public and our listeners should be more aware of than we are? Yeah, quite a few, inevitably. I think one thing that a lot of these things are covered, but probably should be focused on more because they are all extremely 
significant. One, I think, is sanctions evasion. There needs to be a, a wider recognition of the ways that sanctions are not working. For example, the fact that states like states in Central Asia, such as Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, have since the start of the war seen enormous increases in exports to Russia, as well as very significant increases in imports from countries like China, but also Western countries. Clearly, there is large-scale sanctions evasion going on, and this is allowing Russia to sustain its position in the war. And, and that's something that I think needs to be thought about more and, and talked about more. The others, like, I suppose, are broader brush issues. One, I think, an issue that needs to be better understood by everyone in the West, uh, in the UK and elsewhere, is that the way that we see the conflict in Britain and in, in lots of the rest of um, the West is not the way that states and populations elsewhere necessarily see the conflict. So although there isn't huge support for Russia, and indeed I think there's a lot of unease about Russia's kind of imperialist adventurism in, in some countries, there's also a much greater willingness to see this as, as a kind of fault on both sides situation and a much greater tolerance for, for Russia's activities. And of course, that has lots of consequences for, for the war. But I think the other two really important things that, that need to be talked about much more than they are are firstly that this is a long war. It's always It was always going to be a long war. And I think people need to have a much greater recognition of that fact. As soon as the Russian attempt to completely take Ukraine and decapitate the Kyiv government in three days or however long they thought it was going to take, as soon as that failed, as it was always going to do, I think, it, it became clear that we were in for a very long war. And I don't think Western populations are used to fighting or supporting the fighting of, of long, complex wars in Europe anymore. And um, so that's something we all need to readjust to. And then the very important thing, I think, that needs to get talked about a lot more than it is, is that there really is no prospect for a lasting peace agreement in um, Ukraine at the moment um, or in the foreseeable future because it's not in the interests of either of the two parties for there to be one. Indeed, the Russian government has clearly, I think, an interest, as, as some of my colleagues have talked about elsewhere, an interest in having some kind of negotiation that would allow a freezing of the conflict, but only because that would then allow them to reinforce their position in the territories that they occupy, to regroup, to rearm, to do something about the problems in their economy, with a view to starting up again later on. The Russian government has always been extremely fond of frozen conflicts in what it thinks of as its near abroad. It's been one of the major coercive strategies in relation to these countries since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And any peace agreement would really, I think, lead to simply to that situation again. So I think a better understanding of a the, the non-possibility of a lasting peace agreement and, and that we're in this for a long time. I think one question I'd like to ask you, which links quite nicely to this, is to ask what sort of frustrates you most about conversations you hear and maybe you're part of in the West at the moment? There's a, a very long list there, so I, I'll be brief. But I think they all really come down to the same thing. Not something that you hear much from people in Britain, I have to say, but in parts of Europe and in some kind of quarters in the United States, there's a sense that I've had since the start of the war, and it's still there, unfortunately, that once the fighting stops, we can somehow go back to the world before February 2022. And that's just not possible. We're in a different environment now. The relationship to Russia is, is changed and there's no, no way back to the kind of uneasy, pragmatic kind of working relationship that a lot of states had with Russia before. So it's been a kind of paradigm break, a break point in European security and, and international security. But of course, that comes with lots of consequences that people don't want to address, uh, including military spending, thinking seriously about the risk of conflict, accidental or deliberate, with Russia, 
the budgetary choices that come with that, all of these things that people in Germany and France and the United States and elsewhere have not wanted to talk about. But we're there. And getting people to understand that we are in an entirely different world now from the world before February 2022, I think is probably the, the single most frustrating thing. The second thing that I think is certainly in my experience can frustrating is an idea that the really big risk is Putin going, right, dying or being removed and chaos ensuing. And that therefore somehow putting up with the devil you know is better than thinking about an alternative. And, and this is very problematic because I think it leads to, in some quarters, to, to excessive caution in thinking about what kind of support the West is willing to give Ukraine, because there's a risk that if, for example, you know, Ukrainian actions could lead to, let's say, the loss of Crimea, and this could have implications for Putin. The real problem, I think, is a reluctance to admit that, that Putin is not a young man. He is not going to be in power, even really in the medium term. I mean, in the next 10 years, it's hard to see that he's going to have a kind of firm grip on power. But people, I think, are reluctant to think about that because it's scary, frankly, for a lot of people. So there's a kind of short-termism in thinking about the relationship with Russia rather than a willingness to recognise what's coming inevitably. Just one more question from me, Ruth. Thank you so much. This is really, really interesting because I know Dom and Francis um, will want to jump in as well. But what's your... I mean, this is something we've talked about on the podcast quite a lot and it's popped up a lot in international diplomacy over the past two years. But what's your understanding of the current state of relationships between Russia and, well, the other states that were in the Soviet Union aside from Ukraine? So it's, it's a mixed picture, but it's mostly very bad news for Russia. So to kind of step back a bit, step out very briefly. One of the reasons for for Russia launching this war in the first place was to do with Russian great powerness, a sense that Russia as a great power and and the Russian government thinks of Russia as as a great power and, and this being absolutely fundamental to Russian national identity. That depends on Russia's ability to not just influence, but really control the region around it, what it thinks of as it's nearer abroad, the other states that used to be part of the Soviet Union. And that obviously together with a desire to kind of reset the strategic map of Europe in a way that pushed NATO back, these were the two kind of big, I think, geopolitical reasons to, to start the war in the first place. But actually the war has had in both cases the opposite effect to the one that was intended, obviously the idea that NATO was going to be made smaller and weaker has not happened. On the contrary, uh, NATO has become, I think, more cohesive and certainly larger. And in the the space of the former Soviet Union, you've actually seen a very noticeable weakening of Russian influence almost everywhere, in Central Asia, in the South Caucasus, in states, or even in Moldova, which was much more vulnerable to Russian influence and coercion, I think, before the start of the war. And now it's on the path towards EU membership, something that would have been totally unimaginable, really, a few years ago. But there are two countries where Russian influence has maintained itself or or deepened. The first is Belarus, which for a long time now has been um, one of Russia's closest allies in the region of the former Soviet Union particularly since 2020, when mass protests almost toppled the president, Lukashenko. He's now totally dependent on Putin for his own political and possibly personal survival. And so unsurprisingly, the war has tied Belarus in even closer to Russia. The other state, more surprisingly, perhaps, is Georgia in the South Caucasus, very strategically important state for Russia because of its position south of Russia, north of Iran, and between the the Black and Caspian Seas. And there, actually, you have seen the government kind of accommodating itself to Russia a bit more, distancing itself more, perhaps, from the West, which is not something that the population seems to support. Um, And so there's a potential that could change in, in the future, in the near future, perhaps. Really, it is... Georgia and and Belarus are the two states where Russia has either maintained its influence or extended it. The rest of the space, it's lost ground. And that's 
deeply problematic for Putin. Ruth, hi, it's Dom here. Thanks so much for coming on today. It's absolutely fascinating stuff. I've got a couple of questions, if I may. You, you talked about us now existing in an entirely different world to that before the start of the full-scale invasion. Do you think the UN, as it currently is structured and on, operates, is fit for purpose in the new world that we are in? Is it even aware, do you think, that the world has changed? Is, is it time for new structures of that kind of, well, not world government, of course, but is, is it, should the UN continue to exist as it is, do you think, in this new world? It's it's very difficult question because the United Nations has been having this conversation or people have been having this conversation about the UN um, for a very long time. This debate came up at the end of the Cold War and in the 1990s and again in the noughties. It, it's a problem, you know, in the same way that it said that democracy is the, is the worst idea except for all the alternatives. The United Nations is very problematic in many ways, but it's hard to think how it can be reformed because certainly reforming the UN Security Council would require the consent of the permanent members of the UN Security Council. And for example, Russia is never going to consent to, to stop being a permanent member of, of the UN Security Council. So, so you either reform it or you scrap it. Uh, I don't think there's an appetite for scrapping it. It's not clear what other kind of diplomatic forum could reasonably replace it. So it, it is very problematic, but I, I think I don't see an alternative, frankly. Yes, uh, a debate that will rumble, but no, thank you for that. And just a, a final one for me, this the sort of totemic issue of escalation, which we've seen all through the the last two years, that the, the, we weren't going to supply tanks, then we weren't going to supply long-range artillery, then we weren't going to supply attackums, and, and now it's still lingering around this issue with Taurus, the German cruise missile, that, that deemed too escalatory, too provocative to Russia. Do you see it that way? And can you? Is it possible to draw the sting out of this idea of pr- provocation and, and and escalation, or are these very real diplomatic um, poo traps that we should be very cautious about stepping anywhere near? It's something is difficult to talk about, and one has to be extremely cautious because the stakes are so high. Of course, as, as we all know. But I think this is one of the great kind of frustrations of the, the Western response to the war, um, at least it is for me, a, a constant anxiety about escalation and red lines um, and, and whether we are or might be stepping over some of Putin's red lines, um, which seem to shift continuously. Um, I, I think it's, un- to me at least, it's undeniable that the West has been much too cautious on weapons supply to Ukraine, on the willingness to allow Ukraine, in effect, to give Ukraine the weapons to attack Crimea, to attack Russian military targets inside Russia itself that are being used to target civilians in Ukraine. So I think, yeah, it's it's a a significant problem. It's one that's still um, an issue, as as you say. We've just seen it in relation to um, the Bundestag and the vote on Taurus. Um, it's also an issue, I think, to, to some extent in the United States. And it's it's if we are going to continue to support Ukraine, and at this point I don't see an alternative to that, nor would I want to see an alternative to that, um, then there has to be a kind of, I think, much more willingness to, to challenge this idea of escalation and red lines. I mean, the escalation is coming from Russia. And I think one of the significant issues that, again, a lot of Western policymakers are failing to grapple with is the fact that failure to support Ukraine will itself lead Russia to escalate, right? So if the escalation is coming from Russia, then doing nothing is going to in itself produce further escalation to which the West will have to respond. So I don't think there's any way out of that dilemma other than to decide that there is going to be more support for, for Ukraine in order to actually push back against Russian aggression. So, and I think that's become clearer over the course of the war. Thanks, Rufus Francis here. That's a really interesting point. I just want to go back to what you were saying, very interesting on the impact on other countries, particularly those in the former Soviet Union influence of this war. I just wanted to ask what your feeling is on the question of China and Russia's relationship with China. 
there's a lot of smoke and mirrors, but it does seem that their relationship has been strengthened by this conflict. Do you agree with that? And what do you think is the direction of travel and the nature of that relationship? Do you see China as sort of rubbing its hands with glee at the way that Russia has been forced to rely on it? Or do you think actually that this really is a true partnership of equals in a sense? No, it's not a partnership of equals. It wasn't a partnership of equals even before the start of the war. Of course, after 2014, when Ukraine lost Crimea, when Russia annexed Crimea and then facilitated or created a conflict in eastern Ukraine, Western states introduced sanctions. And that, of course, increased Russian dependence on the economic relationship with China. So already from 2014, you can see a significant shift, I think, in the balance of the relationship. But that's been turbocharged by the war. It seems to me that there are enormous advantages in the war for China. And so I know that a lot of policymakers in capitals in Europe and again in in the United States there's a certain impatience perhaps in the focus on with the focus on Russia in the sense that really we should be worrying about China, right? Actually, I don't think we can separate those two issues out now because there are clear advantages for China, it seems to me, in, in this war. Um, China is essentially getting an increasingly asymmetric relationship with Russia in a way that benefits it. But it's also watching the West and Russia fight, in effect, now watching the West expend lots of um, military equipment and a huge amount of money on um, supporting Ukraine against Russia. So it's it's seeing its competitors in the West potentially distracted, engaged elsewhere. And it's also getting, as I say, the benefit of a hugely unequal relationship with Russia. So there are lots of upsides to the conflict, I think, for China. Obviously, if if the if the war were to spill over and and become a wider war, that I suspect would not be good news for China because that would have um, implications for the Chinese economy. But at the moment, it seems pretty good from the Chinese point of view. I would have thought. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Well, thank you, Ruth, so much for your time and for answering all of our questions. Let's move to our final thoughts then. Um, Dom Nichols, would you like to go first? Yeah, thanks, David. So last night, as I said yesterday, I was at the French ambassador's residence here in London for the joint Franco-German New Year's celebration drinks. All, all very nice. I only spilt and drink a few times, a bit of spinach in the teeth, but generally got away with it. I was speaking to a, <clears throat> excuse me, a very senior a German diplomat about that Taurus vote in the Bundestag that we talked about yesterday. And as we thought, as we suggested yesterday, this diplomat was saying that, yes, it was fraught with internal politics rather than being a pure vote on on Taurus. Uh, The diplomat said that this issue of escalations we've just been discussing is still very live in German politics and that Chancellor Olaf Scholz is not yet decided which way he wants to go. Now, the individual I spoke to didn't then offer an opinion when he said Schultz has not yet decided, he didn't say if that was because he was more concerned about that Schultz is more concerned about the politics or if he genuinely hasn't made up his mind as to whether or not he wants to send Taurus yet. But very interesting that that was, as we thought, internal, more internal German politics, of which more to come, I'm sure. The individual I spoke to also talked about the shootdown earlier this week of that A-50 airborne command control plane, Russian Russian plane over the Sea of Azov. And I suggested at the time that it was an ambush, as in a, a pre-planned, a lot of effort gone into making sure that the right weapon system is in the right place to, to grab that plane when it could. It sounds like that was the case. It seems, from what I'm told, that a Patriot system, air defence system, was brought forward by the Ukrainians, it had to go far far much further forward than it would than they would otherwise like to put it 
in order for its maximum range or for it to be able to reach the A-50. But in so doing, it was well within the range of Russian weapons. So it was very definitely a, a sort of shoot and scoot from the Patriot, which speaks of the level of risk that Ukraine is willing to take with signature pieces of equipment, but also the amount of planning that must have gone into that would have been quite phenomenal. Now, on that last point, I note today's British MOD update saying that Russia has moved its remaining A-50 planes back to only operate over its own territory in a bid to protect them from Ukrainian attacks. The MOD today is saying that another A-50 has been sighted over Russia's Krasnodar region. That's the bit of Russia east of Crimea and the Russian end of the Kirsch Bridge. It borders the Sea of Azov and the Black Sea to the south. And it, like I say, from there it leans out into the Kirsch Bridge. The MOD said this activity, i.e. pulling the planes back, is highly indicative of a reduced risk appetite for the airframes and an attempt to preserve remaining A-50 at a loss to its, that's Russia, a loss to Russia's overall effectiveness over Ukraine. So an immediate effect, a very complex and very risky operation, but has had an an immediate effect on on what Russia, the risk Russia is prepared to take seemingly with its very... um, very rare and signature piece of equipment such as the A50. A very interesting evening all round and nice kind of pace. Thanks, David. Thank you very much, Dom. Let's go to Francis Sternley next. Well, thanks, David. I hope Dom took a box of Freya Rocher to the ambassador's reception. We've talked a lot on the podcast about the importance of the war of perception. And what I mean by that are these sort of narrative periods of the war and how that influences public opinion and, more importantly, political opinion, which, of course, is highly relevant in the German context that Don was just talking about and whether to give Taurus or to give tanks, etc. And I just wanted to flag for listeners an interesting piece by Neil Hauer in War on the Rocks, and it's called Ukraine's War of Narratives. And... For one thing, it serves as quite a neat summary of the different phases of the war, to which he numbers there have been seven so far. So to read just a few of them, he says the first major narrative cycle preceded the war itself in the run up to the invasion. Russian forces widely expected to crush Ukraine's conventional troops. Then as the euphoria of the unexpected victories in the war's opening stages for Ukraine faded, another phase of the war and its perception set in. Then there was that drastic one of the surprise offensive in September 2022. Analysts began to talk about the war being over by Christmas. Others talked about Ukrainian forces reaching the Crimea Peninsula within a few months. This again didn't last. Ukraine began to fall short of supplies with ammunition in particular running down. Then there were hopes of a Ukrainian winter offensive to seize the key Donbass junction town of Kremina. That didn't materialise. There were concerns about that. Then, of course, we had the siege of Bakhmut and all the narratives within that as the city was uh, swinging one way and the other. Then, of course, the slow but steady advance through the city and its full capture in May last year renewed a certain atmosphere of pessimism. But then, of course, that uptick in optimism prior to the counteroffensive with Kiev officials saying they expected to liberate Crimea within five to seven months if things went well. And now we're seeing perhaps the pendulum swing back to pessimism again after, of course, the counteroffensive and uncertain questions about the trajectory of travel. So it's very interesting, I think, just as a sort of short summary of the various different phases of the conflict and how that's influenced various perceptions of it, as well as just offering, I think, a a cautionary tale in anyone who has definitive viewpoints on how this war is headed. That is not how history works, as I've said many times on the podcast. Anyone now who looks at, say, the logistical quadrant or the economic quadrant or the military numbers quadrant and says, well, based on that, Russia will win or Ukraine is absolutely determined to do this, is simply not understanding the way that history works, which is always twists and turns, important relationships, important decisions made at critical moments. If one were, as Neil says in his piece, looking at this war purely on paper and in theory, then we would not be almost two years into it. It would have ended in a matter of weeks, as Ruth said earlier. So I just think caution, caution, caution. And this piece is an interesting essay in caution. So I recommend it to listeners and we'll put the link to it in the show notes. Thank you very much, Dom and Francis. Ruth, as our guest, would you like the very final words? Everything that we that we are doing, that we're talking about, that we're thinking about, that politicians are deciding now, that will have consequences for the course of the war. It's very easy to think that this is out of our hands. It's absolutely not. 
So I think recognising the importance of, of, the, of everyone's kind of decisions now, the critical importance of it, and, and not being pessimistic about a, a kind of predetermined outcome to the war, I think that's, that's one of the key things to bear in mind. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our world affairs newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.